Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme, what's the plan? The smart cities, the proactive cities, have been good at putting plans in place to make sure those worst outcomes, those worst consequences, don't occur. The best and the worst examples of city design from around the world all started in the same way, with a plan. Today, we look at the wider world of urban planning to see how the future is shaping up for the industry and try to come up with some ideas that could help designers avoid the mistakes of the past. Plus, we assess the merits and shortcomings of a recent UK government proposal to speed up the planning process. Will a quantity over quality approach mean a far less beautiful Britain for years to come? All that and more coming up right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. The urban landscape is certainly not looking its usual self at the moment. Many of our citizens are still reluctant to emerge from their summer hibernation and get back into the city centres. As such, urban planners are squaring up to the new normal that is starting to come into focus, and it spells big challenges ahead. Well, joining me now is Brent Tadarian, the former Vancouver chief planner and founding president of the Council for Canadian Urbanism. Brent has been exploring some of the future scenarios for our cities, and I wanted to invite him onto the show to discuss some of the places where our predictions overlap and where they might differ too. Brent, thank you for joining us on The Urbanist. Now, planners are facing quite a strange new challenge at the moment, aren't they? With so many top employers dissuading workers from re-entering offices and effectively pushing them out of our cities, are we seeing planners forced to be more reactive than ever before to try to save our commercial centres? We know that, for example, the moves that are being made by smart cities are in response to an emergency. And that is exactly what they are. They may or may not have a lasting effect on permanency once we are on the other side of this pandemic in whatever we mean by getting to the other side, a viable vaccine or other approaches. And we don't know what the new normal is going to be relative to the virus. So we don't know yet what the new normal is going to be for cities. But we do know this, that if we come out of the pandemic, as we've seen in cities like Wuhan, actually driving more. We know that that is a recipe for disaster in many contexts and consequences from air pollution and urban health issues relating to sedentary living all the way to climate change from GHG emissions. So we know that. That's not a question. We know that for sure. So the smart cities, many of the European cities have actually been leaders at this, have said, whatever else we don't know, we know that We can't have more people driving after this pandemic because the lazy narrative is that people will want to wear their suits of armor, their cars, to protect them from the perceived risk of city life, and thus will want to drive more. So yes, there are things we don't know, and the best planning we can do is what's often referred to as scenarios planning. We think of all the various scenarios and what we would need to do in those various circumstances instead of thinking there's just one answer to how cities will be. But we do know what outcomes and consequences we need to and want to avoid. And the smart cities, the proactive cities, have been good at putting those plans in place to make sure those worst outcomes, those worst consequences, often related to car use, don't occur. 
I agree with you. I, you know, I cycle to work. I cycle to work this morning. But it's kind of comical in the city that we have put up so many temporary cycle lanes. The ambition to use this moment for European cities to go all out for the cycle ignores the reality that people are using their car as armors because at the very same time, our politicians are saying, do not go on public transport. You have an organization here, an American employer, the Carlisle Group, which have said to their city workers, if you go on public transport, even in your personal life at the weekends, and we find out about it, you will have to quarantine for 14 days. So, of course, there's an uptick in car use. And we know that many of the most vulnerable people will never be able to go on public transport again. And they're not of a healthy variety that they can jump on a bicycle. So the car isn't going anywhere in the short term. Don't we need planners to have a little bit more calmness around this and think that this is a more of a synchronised dance between all of these elements? I'm sorry, but you've just given me a massive amount to unpack with a lot of false choices and false narratives. So it's going to take me a while to respond to that. First of all, what the Carlisle Group is doing is fundamentally stupid and wrong. The smart cities in the world have recalibrated their public transport. In Vancouver here, for example, they've just gone live with requiring masks being mandated after a phase-in period. They've done proper and responsible techniques to make sure that there are fewer interactions on transit. They made transit free, for example, and loaded from the back. They closed every second chair and every second seat. So the responsible thing to do is to recognize that what we need is not nobody on transit because cities don't function when that tries to occur. No urban city can function without transit. What we need is fewer people on transit. What we need is less crowding because density in transit isn't the problem. Crowding anywhere is the problem. And transit systems have continued to play not the role they played before, but an important and critically responsible role, not only for everyone and just to take the pressure off the other ways of getting around transit, but particularly for the folks who don't have other choices, who can't drive. So that is an absolute, I'm going to be unequivocal. That's a ludicrous and irresponsible statement that the American employer Carlisle Group did. And nobody should be doing that. And it's not even warranted because we've actually seen from the real data and analysis that public transit has not been a source of viral spread and outbreaks. Secondly, I'm not saying that urban biking is the only answer. There has been a significant uptick in urban biking because people, particularly folks who have to go farther distances, if they don't want to drive and they don't want to take public transit for whatever reason, it's a good thing that there's been an uptick in urban biking. And we've seen in actual studies that even temporary bike infrastructure has seen, I think, an average 7% increase in bike mode share across 100 or so European cities that were studied. And so that's a good thing because that's provided another choice, taken pressure off ways of getting around. But we need all things to be working during a pandemic. We need public transits to still be viable. We need bike to be seen as a safer and better option for many people. We need walking to be a very good and attractive choice. And yes, we need cars to still be a potential. But let's be clear, we know from forever that the more space you give to a car, the more people will drive. They will fill up that space. And the only thing that limits people from driving really is congestion. 
So the more space you give to cars, the more space you're going to need for cars. We've always known that, and it's true during the pandemic. But the other thing that's also happening is working from home. And the interesting question we're going to see there is how much of that stays now that employers have built the infrastructure and the culture to make working from home more permanently viable. How will that change the demand for downtown office space? How will that change the demand for suburban homes on the assumption that people will move out to the suburbs? We have to recognize that if those things do happen, there are significant public interest consequences to that that we have to manage. But the real question here is what will happen once the pandemic is over, depending on what we mean by the pandemic being over? Because what we do know is that cities have always succeeded and recovered after these kinds of events historically when there has been a solution found. So the question is, what does the solution look like? And then what will that translate to into a better multimodal city for everyone? How big a threat do you think it is to the future of the city homeworking? Is it a threat or is it an opportunity and how much of each it is, depending on how much we actually see? It's actually very fascinating. Most of the people I've seen providing input or opinions on work from home are looking at the issue from just one variable. You know, do you have less driving to commute into the office every day because of work from home? Well, you might have and you probably will have less commuting from the suburbs. But if that actually ends up driving, no pun intended, more people to the suburbs, it actually is quite possible that it could be the opposite. We have less commuting traffic to and from work, but we have more overall driving, more overall car ownership and car use, more overall suburban sprawl because of working from home. And that's even before you consider the implications to the viability of downtown office space, how downtown office space is absolutely necessary to make downtown retail space and restaurant space viable. The entire ecosystem of downtown living could be affected by this. But again, we don't know yet. The helpful thing to do is to think about the scenarios. And as a planner, I keep coming back to how can we influence those decisions to have the best possible outcomes for the public interest. It's a fascinating point because, you know, we hear all these mayors, they found a new phrase, which is, you know, the 15 minute city and this notion that everything you need is within 15 minutes of your home. So it brings, you know, suburbia rising back up the ranks and everybody's talking about how if you go out to the suburbs, actually life seems pretty normal. But, you know, we were in exactly the same point in the 50s and the 60s. And we saw what happened. There was a piece of technology, the car, that meant you didn't have to feel that you were like penned in the city centre. You could drive wherever you wanted. You were supposedly mobile. So people maybe came into the city centre for work, but it certainly vanished in the evening. Now we have, you know, lots of technology that everyone says how amazing it is. You can work from home. But then we saw what was termed white flight, the move of middle class families out of the city core. Don't you fear that that is exactly what's going to happen again here if people aren't encouraged back into the city centre, that we will go exactly back to this world where you, know, you have this donut of you know, vibrant, pleasant places where the wealthy live on the edge of the city and the downtown cores jump back to you know, what Los Angeles was 30 years ago, what Detroit was 25 years ago, completely left, neglected and left to a group of people who aren't supported in services, in, in all the things they need to thrive. The idea of the 15-minute city is not a new idea, it's a new brand, and it's the Paris brand. And I, for one, have been touting it like crazy because it's a great 
brand. It's a great conversation starter. I've seen very few things that have inspired so many other cities in so short a time as what Paris has done. Having said that, Melbourne's been using the 10-minute city for years. Even in Vancouver, we have something called the five-minute city built into our city planning processes. Oslo, Norway calls it the city of short distances, which is a term I really like. Everything is just close. I call it the power of nearness often. I've been calling it that for decades. So there's all sorts of brands that actually are saying the same thing, that when things are local, you don't need to think about the best way to go far, public transit or driving or long bike commutes, for example. Now, the assumption that this concept of the 15-minute city favors the suburbs, I really question, because frankly, most suburbs are not even close to a 15-minute city. One of the mistakes that's often made is people in suburban contexts assume that 15 minutes mean 15-minute drive. That's not what the concept is about. It's about being able to walk or roll on bike or wheelchair to get everything you need within 15 minutes of your home, not by car. Because as soon as you introduce the car, all the space goes away and everybody gets stuck in traffic and you can do very little in 15 minutes. And by the way, everything gets planned and designed to the scale of the car with massive parking lots. And then you can't have local. The whole point of a 15 minute city is the opposite of the car based approach we've been designing, particularly in North America, but then copied by so many other places in the world. So. I don't buy for a second that the suburbs can and should benefit from this spread of the concept of the 15-minute city unless we're prepared to do fundamentally different suburbs than we've ever done. And this is something I've been championing for a long time because still here, certainly in North America, most people live in the suburbs and most people are still going to the suburbs. So we need a fundamentally different design for all future suburbs starting five minutes ago, starting five years ago to stop building auto-dependent suburban sprawl and building a better, more complete, more walkable, more 15-minute suburb kind of approach. And we need to be willing to retrofit our existing suburbs, which is probably one of the biggest, hardest things to do in the regional pattern. So that's a massive conversation. Your comment about what it's going to mean for white flight, I think Time will tell. But this is where I think we need to actively intervene again. Cities need to be doing everything they can to keep downtowns attractive. Why people started to move their office space, their retail space, invest in downtowns, and most importantly, live in downtowns. Cities need to take Herculean efforts to keep that in place, or else downtowns absolutely will deteriorate if left to just their own devices or the market choices. We need to intervene. That is the very definition of planning. The thing I've actually seen and heard more than maybe a white flight is a gray flight. I've heard that one of the possible scenarios is to have older people move out of the cities in larger numbers. What I hear in this theory, though, is that young people won't, that young people will always want to stay within cities for their career development, their social interaction, all the reasons that young people love cities. That won't change. The question is, the demographic group in the middle, the young people that have gotten old enough to start families, like the front end of the millennial generation right now that have turned 40, where will they be? And what I still say is what I've always been saying. If you design urban places to make them attractive to families by having houses that can fit families, two and three bedroom apartments, etc., you will get families and you will keep millennials as they get into family ages 
The problem is we've designed many of our downtowns and urban places to virtually repel kids and families. And we've created a self-fulfilling prophecy when the families don't come. And on that, we certainly do agree. Brent Tadarian, thank you so much for joining us here on The Urbanist. The UK government recently unveiled a new policy document, or white paper, that set out their proposals for future legislation on planning. The so-called Planning for the Future white paper vowed to build a more beautiful Britain whilst removing the so often maligned red tape. The goal seems to be to speed up the entire planning process and quell the rising housing crisis in the country. But does this restructure focus too much on quantity over quality? And is it the death knell for good design and beautiful buildings? Well, I'm joined now by Matthew Carmona, Professor of Planning and Urban Design at the Bartlett School of Planning here in London. Matthew, thank you for joining me. The issue of planning regulation is always a very political one. Do you think it's actually possible to have a policy around housing that brings along the whole country? Or is it always going to be divided between these competing ideologies and needs? Well, I think this is what a good planning system should do. It's about taking the different needs of different communities, reconciling those needs, thinking about what we need as a country or different regions or cities within the country, and trying as best as possible to ensure those different needs are met. Now, I suppose the problem is in our country where we have a planning system which is very driven by the centre is that those central policies may not be right for one part of the country, but may be right for another. And so there's inevitably tensions, but a good planning system should be able to work through those tensions and resolve them. That's really what planning is all about. Now, I've read some of the things you've written about this white paper. You're critical I'll get you to give a rounded take on your perspective. But one of the the key things you seem to be most concerned about is that there's still not a focus on quality building of houses for what we would call the regular customer going into the market, either to rent or to buy a property or to come through social housing, that all of this housing being proposed may come a little bit quicker, but won't be very good once it's delivered. Is quality part of your key critique of this white paper? Well, the white paper starts with a statement from the Secretary of State that they plan to cut red tape, but not standards. And I think I would be concerned about that statement. Firstly, I think a planning system is not red tape. A planning system is there to try and guarantee the best quality development for everybody. And that includes delivery of places which are well designed, which are sustainable, which meet the everyday needs, both of the citizens who are occupying those new places, but also existing communities. And getting that balance right between the amount of development and the quality of development is something that we've always struggled with in this country. Other countries seem to be much better at doing it. And I think what the white paper is trying to do is look at some of these other countries and say, right, well, what can we learn from those countries to apply here in England? And in particular, at the heart of the white paper is a move from what we have known as a discretionary planning system That's a system where every single planning application is dealt with on its merits and considered in terms of a set of quite loose, flexible policies. 
And the alternative is what's called an as of right system or a zoning system, whereby if you meet certain predefined criteria, you can develop as of right, if you like. You don't need to go through further hurdles to ensure you get your permission. The white paper is trying to introduce a more as of right system and move away from the discretionary system. Now, the danger of that is that if we don't get the proper mechanisms to ensure that the as of right decisions are made in a way which is sensitive to different local contexts, then we'll end up with worse rather than better design. This battle, this kind of debate has been presented in much of the media as either nimbyism in one corner and this belief that no building should happen in my neighbourhood. I don't want you know, additional layers added to buildings. I don't want infill. I don't want the green field next to my house turned into a housing estate. And on the other side, this proper housing crisis, we know that many people just don't have access to a permanent home. They're, they're sharing with friends when they shouldn't be. They don't have access to the housing market. Do you think that's the kind of wrong overlay to be placing on this process that we should be focusing on these other issues of, you know, quality of sensitivity to neighbourhood of doing things, yes, in in an effective way, but with a bit of beauty added in along the journey? Because when you get stuck on this debate between is it nimbyism or is it should we have like free reign for the market, it seems to end up in a very political space. Planning is incredibly political, but I don't think it's either or. I don't think we either have to have, you know, let anything rip and anything go or sensitive development that's right for local context. I think there's a balance to be struck there. We need both the quantity, quantity of houses in the right places, and also the quality. Now, a few months ago, myself and colleagues conducted a thing called a housing audit. And we looked at 142 large scale housing developments around England. And what we found is that on the whole, the sort of developments that are being delivered are pretty poor quality, pretty poor both in their design and pretty unsustainable. So something's gone wrong. We need to think about how we can deliver those places better. But I don't think we can put all the blame at the planning system. There's a sort of systemic failure here of developers as well as local authorities. And much of it comes down to the fact that over the last 10 years, but also before that, we've stripped out resources from the planning system. There's not the skills and the capacity within our local planning authorities to deliver the high quality places that we want. And those should need to be high quality places, whether it's in an inner city area where there's a desperate need for new housing or in the shires, you know, or the edges of our cities, even in the countryside. They need to be high quality places. That should be an absolute given. Now, obviously, the conversations about this white paper had started some time ago. The pandemic, as you said at the beginning of this interview, has made it a government priority to get the housing market going again. It's a huge employer. People need to have some mobility so they can get to places where they can live and work. But how much is the pandemic, do you think, going to shape planning in the short term, at least? Well, in the short term, like any sector, it's had its challenges. New ways of working have had to be introduced very rapidly so that decisions can carry on being made with local planning authorities and the councillors who ultimately make many of the decisions using technology rather than face-to-face meetings to make those decisions. And I think technology will be an increasing part of how planning will work 
going forward. And certainly the white paper emphasises the important role of new technology in making it a more efficient and effective planning system. And I think most people would agree that that's a necessary change. And again, it comes back to this notion that we need to invest in our planning system. We need to update our planning system and increase its capacity. And just tell me, if you were the housing minister, (laughs) it's easy for both you and me to sit here and say, we can see the problems with this. We can see all the wrinkles. But if you were the housing minister, what would be the things that you would think could be in a white paper that would reshape the way that architecture and development happens here in the UK when we consider housing? What would you like to see come to the fore? I think there are a number of things in the white paper that I would you know, strongly support. One is the idea that you move forward the discussion on the development from instead of letting developers come forward with proposals and then communities getting up in arms and very concerned about them because they haven't been consulted. There's a strong emphasis on whether earlier on in the process communities can be engaged in you know, deciding what are the right sites and what are the right types of development for their locality. And I would support that. And I think technology can play a role in that. I think having what I would call site-specific design codes created is very important. A design code is a set of design principles for a site or an area, but it's important that those relate specifically to the site. In other words, there's been a creative design process which has gone on to ensure that the new development is right for that site and not just generic, not just something that could be applied everywhere. And I think there could certainly be a greater emphasis on this need for site-specific design process within the white paper. The other thing which the white paper does mention is the idea of what I've called a design quality unit, which is some sort of national body that would have a role in trying to encourage a greater concern for design quality nationally. Things like helping local authorities to engage more with these site-based design processes to ensure that we get a much better more appropriate form of development locally. And I would certainly welcome that if we had such a body created. Matthew Carmona, Professor of Planning and Urban Design at the Bartlett School of Planning. Thank you for joining us. Speaking of plans, one of the toughest tasks in the past few months has been actually making a plan that you can stick to. From dinners to events to holidays, cancellations have been a common end to many recent email chains. But as confidence begins to return, some plans are starting to come to fruition and events are beginning to go ahead again. Manifesta, the European nomadic biennial, is due to kick off this weekend in Marseille after postponing its original June start date. We spoke to the director and founder of Manifesta, Hedvig Fidgen, this week to find out what's on the agenda and to discuss the challenges of getting this year's edition of the event to go ahead. Manifesta is supposed to be, by the outsiders, the third biennial in the world. But for me, I don't want to call it a typical biennial. It's nomadic because we are acting in the periphery and we're going to cities who invite us acting as an incubator to, let's say, stimulate certain transformation processes. Manifesta is originally coming from the visual arts, but we turned to be really interdisciplinary. So... Because of our origin, being nomadic, we move from city to city, and there are many cities in Europe inviting us 
to come to their city, most of the time with a very specific commission. So, for example, Leo Luca Orlando, who hosted us in 2018, asked Manifesta and Manifesta 12, can you help my citizens to reclaim their own city, the city of Palermo, which was occupied by a criminal force, the Mafia, for 45 years. So, in that sense, we don't come in to make just a series of exhibitions. We don't come in just to make a blockbuster show. It's a far more social-political engaged project, which is mostly started with talking to the local citizens and asking, what can we do, which you can't do yourself. Marseille will be the first biennial in which three programs are combined, synergized and merged into one biennial, of which there is a Parallel du Sud, local programs with very much looking for a trait d'union, which is the title of the main exhibition part, looking for connections, looking for coexistence, looking for cohabitation. How do we live together? How do we work together? How do we plan our future in a post-corona time? This is actually the main, not the code rouge, but the ligne rouge in this Biennale event. There are many educational projects, and of course there is the publication of our Manifesta 13 Marseille, Le Grand Puzzle, an urban study executed by Vinnie Maas and his team of MVRDV and the Y Factory of the Delft University, which hopefully in this transition period of 2020 in Marseille will maybe become an alternative scenario for the future of the city. Hedvig Fidgen, director and founder of Manifesta there. And you can find out more about the event at manifesta13.org. And that's all we have for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens. David also edited the show. To play you out of this week's episode, here's Block Party with Plans. Thank you for listening, city lovers. <laughs>